It is a privilege to join you on this occasion for this Founders Conference. I want to invite you to take your Bibles, if you would, and open to Galatians. Galatians chapter number 3 will be the, the assigned topic given to me and the focus of this very session. And what I want to do in this time together is I want to look, uh, if we can, at a very important subject as we consider this whole theme of social justice. And we're going to read this text of scripture together that was penned by the Apostle Paul to the church at Galatia, Galatians 3 verse 28, then we're going to dive in. I want to thank all of the volunteers and everyone who's serving us so well uh, in kicking off this conference today and look forward to fellowship, getting to know many of you who have traveled far and wide to be with us, and I look forward to uh, breaking bread and just enjoying conversation and Christian fellowship. As we read this passage of Scripture, let's hear now the word of the living God, and it reads as follows. Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. Now, Father, as we bow before your throne at this very juncture, at the beginning of this conference, we ask that you would strengthen us by your word, that you would encourage us in the grace that you've given to us, that you would build us up in the faith, that you would strengthen us for the work of ministry. And Father, again, that we would be faithful ambassadors preaching the word of truth to a lost and dying culture that desperately needs the hope of King Jesus. We ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Just days before Christmas, there was a knock on the door, and my wife went out to see who it was, and she came back in, and she announced in the living room that my daughter, my youngest daughter, Callie, was needed outside. So she jumps to her feet, and she ran out to see who it was that was there to visit her. It turns out it was her grandfather, And uh, that's really no unusual thing. They live in an apartment downstairs. But the fact of the matter was, was that he was there to see her specifically just a few hours before Christmas, a few days before Christmas. And so, as you can imagine, any little girl, she is just ecstatic with this whole idea of what it might be. And so she goes running past my wife, and as she did so... My wife gives me one of those looks, you know, one of those looks that really doesn't require a whole lot of words to communicate exactly what she was trying to say. Something isn't right. Something isn't good. And as I continued to look into her eyes, she said these words, you are not going to be happy. I thought, oh no, this, this can't end well. And so I hear my daughter screaming with excitement and in comes my little eight-year-old and she has a 1.5 pound puppy in her hand. I was reminded as I thought and paused about, you know, there's a right way and a wrong way to respond in any given circumstance. So I sat there as she was elated, as she was overjoyed, and I thought, about how I would respond as my father-in-law entered the room and was standing there and she's continuing to just be overjoyed about 15 minutes pass. And I don't think I had said a word yet. And finally she turns to my wife, to her mom and says, mom, is this a dream? 
And I said, yes, ma'am, it is. It's called a nightmare. Um, I suggested we name the little puppy Nightmare Before Christmas, but that didn't go over well, so we ended up with Noel. As I share that story with you, I think about the fact that there is a right way and there is a wrong way to respond in any given circumstance. And so it is in the case of social justice. There is a biblical justice that finds its source in God. And then there's other forms of justice that find its uh, source in the culture, find its source in, in society, find its source in politics, and the list goes on. And what we must understand in this conference, as we've driven here, as we have planned to be here, as we have worked and paid to be here, as we have now arrived here, and as we're giving ourselves to the very subject of social justice, we need to think in terms of what does God say about justice? What does God expect for us in all of these circumstances of life? How should we respond to injustice? Should it be this thing that's now being pressed upon us called social justice? Years ago, there was uh, this group of islands, still there is a group of islands there, but it's, it was named at that time a cluster of islands just off of the coast of Australia, about halfway between Sydney and Hawaii, a cluster of islands that was at the time known as the New Hebrides. The New Hebrides. Today, this group of islands is known as Vanuatu. But at this particular juncture of time, there was... Uh, if you go back and read about this particular island cluster, you will find that, uh, again, they, they span in a line northwest to southeast over 450 miles, 80 distinct different land bodies. But it wasn't until, get this, 1839 until the gospel of Jesus Christ arrived on these islands. When you think about that, that is, that is unbelievable to think that there was a group of islands a, a, a group of people that there was no, at least to our best knowledge, there was no engagement with the gospel until 1839. And again, when those two missionaries arrived, John Williams and James Harris, within a few minutes of their arrival to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to these people, they were clubbed to death. They, their flesh was cut from their bodies. They were boiled and then they were eaten by cannibals. 1839, there were no Christians in the New Hebrides. The percentage of unreached people in this group of islands was 100%. But interestingly, at this very moment, if you were to, at the next break, if you were to pull up the Joshua Project, if you were to pull up those stats online, which are readily accessible to you, you would find these stats. Today, there is 91.8% Christian population in Vanuatu. 41.28% evangelical. The unreached population of these islands is 0% to this very day. Now, what in the world happened between 1839 with cannibals eating missionaries to 2019, where nearly the entire cluster of islands know Jesus Christ, and most of those people on those islands are believers, are Christians. Something happened. 
And according to history, what happened was that there was a man by the name of John Payton, a missionary who took the message of the gospel there. In fact, when he announced that he was going to go and take the gospel to the New Hebrides, he was met with great criticism. A Mr. Dixon uh, stated with passionate displeasure these words, the cannibals, you will be eaten by cannibals. Now, it had only been 19 years since the cannibals had eaten the two missionaries who first went there with the gospel when Mr. Dixon erupted with those words. John Payton paused for a moment and he responded by stating these words. Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. That's a wonderful, glorious story. And it's wonderful to read of these accounts of faithful, zealous-hearted missionaries. But I want to bring something before you this, this afternoon that would help us think critically about this idea of social justice. You see, when Peyton went to the New Hebrides, he did not go there to deliver a message of social justice. He did not preach the message of intersectionality. He did not sail there under the flag of woke political methodology. He did not go there to bring the people a message of ethnic pragmatism. Peyton did not arrive with a message devoted to taking down savage superiority. This man sailed to the New Hebrides knowing that it might cost him his life, but he was committed to the task understanding. Understanding this plain and simple fact that it is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that will pierce the hearts of men, women, boys, and girls and bring them out of darkness into his marvelous light. He went there with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So as we begin this conference today, we must really ask ourselves an honest question. And it's this, is the gospel enough? With all of the talk of social justice, is the gospel enough to do what we need done in our culture? Do we need to employ these other methods of reaching the culture, such as intersectionality or other political methods? Do we need cultural tactics in order for women to flourish? And the big question must be this, do we have the gospel without social justice. If you remove social justice from where we stand in in this thing that we know as evangelicalism, are we gospel people? Social justice is not a biblical category, but one that has been culturally constructed and imported upon the Bible. As Christians, we should view justice as something that flows from God. So to call something social justice is to take a detour. It's to add a modifier to something that God sees as good, something that finds its source in himself. 
And so when we talk about God and we think about the fact that God is just and that God hates injustice and that God has written his law upon our hearts and that God has called us to be, to be God-centered, to be, to be Christ-exalting, to be gospel people, then we should hate injustice as well. We should hate it when the culture mistreats women. We should hate it when the culture does something that, that would... Uh, that would harm a certain segment of the population. But the fact of the matter is simply this. The answer is not what we now know as social justice. You see, we've, we've arrived at a place in our present evangelical culture where victimology has replaced theology. And keep in mind this clear statement. That just as the civil rights movement was a powerful movement so will the social justice movement become a powerful machine unless we push back against it and hold up the word of God and say, thus says the Lord God. We're living in a day of theological confusion and social justice is like plastic food or man-made water, like clouds without water, like empty wells that promise a lot but never really Deliver on the promises. Paul warned the Galatians about accepting the message of the Judaizers. Yeah, yeah, you can be a Christian. You can be a follower of Jesus if you'll cut the flesh too. And so what was he doing, you say? Well, he was guarding the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so as we think about these very issues, we must be reminded of these Simple yet very important truths. First of all, God has designed justice and called us to live justly in a fallen, sinful world. Any deviation from his justice is dangerous. Number two, the social justice movement is morphing into a confused modifier to the gospel itself. In other words, there are people today who are reevaluating whether or not some should or should not be considered followers of Jesus based upon their embrace or their rejection of social justice. We already have certain social justice warriors who are trying to go back to the history books and, and question the validity of the, of the faith of men like George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards. This is a slippery slope away from the gospel towards heresy. Now hear me well so that I'm not misquoted. I am not suggesting that anyone who embraces or promotes or proclaims social justice is a heretic. I did not say that. So if that shows up as a hashtag on Twitter in a few minutes, I didn't say that. I am suggesting this. That we as gospel people must stand against anything that might be adding to or taking away from the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I firmly believe that social justice is doing that very thing. So let's take a look at this one verse and let's consider a couple of very important things. What is happening here in Galatians 3.28? A very popular verse, a very well-known verse. And what's happening here in Galatians 3.28, we must 
be reminded of since we're parachuting down into the text and we're not doing a full-on exposition in this conference, we must remember that Galatians 3.28 is not somehow divorced from or disconnected from Galatians chapter 1. And so what's happening in Galatians chapter 1 is that Paul is guarding the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's as if at the very beginning in his introduction, he doesn't even uh, just pause to give some, some formalities. He really just takes on the issue of the Judaizers perverting the gospel. And so the issue is that here in just a few pages over in Galatians 3.28, we see that Paul's statement, first of all, is intended to guard the gospel. In other words, we see that in Galatians 1, when he's talking about being accursed, anathema, uh, when we read here in Galatians 3.28, that that's not somehow disconnected. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. I am firmly convinced now having gone through 2017 and what we know as the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation and traveled through Germany and and been able to go on a tour with Sovereign here and preach in those very locations, some very historic places where Luther ministered and where he preached. I am very much convinced that we are living in a day where there there are uh, masses of preachers who are happy to get on airplanes and travel to Oxford and stand in the street with an X and see where martyrs were burned. They're happy to go to the very place where Luther stood and gave his courageous speech at the Diet of Worms. I mean, we have people that will travel far and wide to see statues and and monuments and memorials for John Rogers at Smithfield, the the first of the Marian martyrs. We have all of these people who will travel far and wide to do all of that, to think about historic, brave, zealous-hearted brothers and sisters in Christ, but we have very few today that will stand firm and subject themselves to that type of criticism or possibly even worse. We have pulpits filled with whisperers, man pleasers, men who are unwilling to defend the gospel of Jesus Christ, men who if it weren't for large pulpits you would wonder if they had skirts on or or, or what. We must always remember this truth that people pleasers make poor preachers. They make far worse pastors. We often read in the scriptures and we see courageous, bold men. How do you think that John Rogers and how do you think that that these men went to the stake and were burned? And how do you think that these people like Tyndale were strangled to death and burned at the stake? When you think about all of these men... Whose shoulders were they standing on? They were standing on the shoulders of the Apostle Paul. John Calvin himself said these words, A dog barks when his master is attacked. I would be a coward if I saw that God's truth is attacked and yet would remain silent. Yet there's an awful lot of silence today in the evangelical world as it relates to social justice. So what is he doing here as he guards the gospel? First and foremost, he is guarding against additives. Guarding against additives. 
In other words, there should not be anything added to the gospel. Paul wrote these words in the first chapter. He said, but even if in Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Very next verse, verse 9. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Again, the word accursed here is the word anathema. Literally, in the context speaking about an individual, it literally means to let him be damned to hell. James Montgomery Boyce once said these words, the vehemence with which Paul denounces those who teach another gospel, literally he says, let them be damned, has bothered some commentators as well as other readers of the letter. But this shows how little the gospel of God's grace is understood and appreciated and how little many Christians are concerned for the advance of biblical truth. Are we concerned with the advance of biblical truth? The historic cry of the Reformation was justification by faith alone. You have the five solas, scripture alone, faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. Justification by faith alone was the motto of the Reformation. And yet, today, there are people who are suggesting that you might not yet be justified if you're not willing to accept our definition of social justice. You see, he was guarding against additives. Don't add anything to the gospel. Don't take anything away from the gospel. And so, we too must be zealous-hearted in our approach to guarding the gospel. You consider Luther's bold stand during the Reformation. You consider his bold stance at the Diet of Worms, thinking that maybe he's being invited there to stand and give an account of something that he had said not realizing that he was, going to be given a, he was going to be called to give an account for everything that he had said, everything that he had written. Here are your books. Will you recant of everything that you have written in these books? Contemplating what that meant, he asked for more time to consider his answer and came back the following day with a bold response. And you know the end of the story. Here I stand. May God help me. Amen refusing to go against conscience, refusing to deny the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yet, following in the vein of that zealous-hearted man, you have others. In fact, sometime after that, here's what Luther would say. He would say these words, Our faith in Christ does not free us from works, but from the false opinion Concerning works, that is, from the foolish presumption that justification is acquired through works. So are we justified by doing justice? Is that a part of our justification? And if we choose not to embrace this definition of social justice, are we indeed a Christian at all? Following in his footsteps, again, were many different individuals, such as William Tyndale. And again, we know the end of the story, right? Tyndale was burned at the stake. Tyndale went through a horrific death. And why was that? 
Some say, well, it was simply because of the fact that he wanted the Bible in the common man's language. Yeah, that was part of it, but why did he want the Bible in the common man's language? So that he could unveil justification by faith alone. And yet, he was put to death before he could finish the Old Testament. Coming after him was John Rogers, who had finished the Old Testament, and then he would soon be arrested, and then he would be burned at the stake. He was the first of the Marian martyrs. He was first to die under bloody Mary. But yet we sometimes don't read history well enough. And we think that, well, that they just associated him with the Bible-loving Tyndale. And so he was, he was burned because of the fact that he loved the scriptures. And we, we don't want that. No, that's not why he was burned at the stake. The reason that he was burned at the stake was because he refused to accept the idea and the false doctrine of transubstantiation. Justification by faith alone, not transubstantiation. We're not embracing false teaching. And so it was a bold move. And so these brothers throughout history, they stood faithfully. They resisted false teaching. They said, this is not true. They elevated the beauty of the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And then we see that we must understand that Paul is not only guarding against additives, but he's also guarding against arrogance. There was Jewish pride. The Jews became very arrogant people. In fact, it's quite humorous when you think about the fact that written right down in the word of God, we find that they were a chosen people, not based upon size or strength or anything else good in them. But God chose them, a small people, a weak people to magnify his sovereign glory. And yet they became very arrogant people, sometimes looking down their arrogant noses at Gentiles calling them dogs. Even the proselytes to the Jewish religion were never fully accepted within the religious circles of the Jews. The title uncircumcision was a term of derision. They looked down on the non-Jew. Jews would walk from northern regions to southern regions, taking a long time to walk around Samaria because they rejected them as half-breeds. Many Jews would give a funeral service to their sons who married a Gentile woman. Jews were not permitted to aid in the birth of a Gentile woman's child. Assisting her would be considered bringing another Gentile, another dog into the world. Jews would often shake the dust from their feet after having to travel through Samaria and other places that were filled with Gentiles. And that wasn't enough, you can go to the temple worship and you can find that the courts of separation, you have the the court of the priests, only male members of the tribe of Levi were permitted to enter there. And then you had the court of Israel, only male Jews were permitted to enter there. Then you had the court of women, only a Jew or in fact any Jew could enter the court of women, but no woman could go beyond this point. And then you go five steps downward from that level of the Jewish courtyards to a five-foot high stone barrier that extended around the temple enclosure. And then another set of steps that went 14 steps downward to a level to another courtyard known as the court of the Gentiles. According to the Jewish historian Josephus, the wall dividing the Jews from the Gentiles was, was marked at intervals with stone inscriptions. No foreigner was permitted to enter the Jewish enclosures upon penalty of death. 
According to Josephus, it stated, no foreigner may enter within this barricade, which surrounds the sanctuary and enclosure. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. And so Paul understood the the ideas of the Jewish people. He understood their hypocrisy. He understood their, their arrogance and their pridefulness. And he says here in this text, there is neither Jew nor Greek. In other words, you can't have this idea of arrogance that's an additive to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Jews turned Abraham into an idolatrous figure. They took the historic Abraham and they buried him someplace in the backyard and they elevated a false Abraham before the people so that, so that it, would, it would promote their false teaching and their false ideas. They taught that Abraham was the most righteous man of his generation and that that's why God chose him. The Jews believed that Abraham had earned his way in and as a result of his righteousness that God blessed him and God gave him that specific position. There's an ancient apocryphal book called Ecclesiasticus that in that particular book, it teaches that Abraham was given justification and along with the justification, he was given the privilege of circumcision because he earned it by law keeping. They had completely denied the historic Abraham. This is one reason that Paul labored with intensity in Romans 4 and 5 to teach who Abraham actually was. And you find as you read the Bible in Genesis 15, Abraham was chosen by God and justified. In Genesis 16, Abraham was 86 when Ishmael was born. And then in Genesis 17, he was 99 years old when he was circumcised. So the point is that Abraham was justified and received righteousness 14 years before his skin was cut in circumcision. The Jews taught that Abraham started to faithfully serve God at age three. The Jews believed that Abraham was one of the holy seven, seven men who because of their righteousness brought back the Shekinah glory of God to the tabernacle. The prayer of Manasseh states the following, quote, Therefore thou, O Lord, God of the righteous, hast not appointed repentance for the righteous, for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who did not sin against thee. But thou hast appointed repentance for me, who am a sinner. Do you see the arrogance? Do you see the arrogance here? The book of Jubilees, dating from about the second century BC, states the following, quote, Abraham was perfect in all his deeds with the Lord, and well-pleasing in righteousness all the days of his life. This is what you call Jewish arrogance and pride. But if you go on, you'll see that he says this, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. In other words, there was the pride of the free man, the man who lorded over the slave, who lorded over the slave and, and would often view the slave as a breathing tool. This type of arrogance, this type of pride would not only be interwoven into the culture of Galatia, but it would find its way spilling over into the church in the city of Galatia. So when you have a free man and you have a slave coming to the Lord's table, it would provide friction. 
When you had the, uh, the appointment of elders, it, it, would, it would cause controversy and division. Uh, there would be instability when it came time to appoint deacons to serve. And so, in all of this division surrounding the assembly of the church for worship, Paul says, there is neither slave nor free. He's guarding the gospel. He goes on and speaks about the the pride of men. In fact, Josephus, the Jewish historian, states the following in his works, quote, the woman, so says the law, is inferior in all things to man. Often the woman was not permitted to speak in certain contexts. Often the woman was not uh, permitted to learn. And so often people would look down upon women in this particular culture. And Paul understood that very well. And so he's, he's coming here with this idea of guarding the gospel. Because what he wants to say is that as it pertains to your biology, you, ha- you don't have greater access to God. You don't have greater access to God. And so he speaks here with clarity to guard the gospel of Jesus Christ. But second of all, Paul's statement is intended to proclaim the gospel. So let me just make this clear statement as we think about social justice. Those who would remain silent on on the matters of social justice are missing an opportunity to do two things. To guard the gospel of Jesus Christ and to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we must be willing to, as pastors, it's part of our qualifications, to stand against false teaching, to guard the gospel. And it's likewise a part of our qualification and our call to the office of elder to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. So in short, let me say it like this. To remain silent on the issues of social justice is not in question for a pastor. We must understand these issues. We must give ourselves to studying the word of God. And then we must speak with crystal clarity on these issues. No ambiguity. No beating around the bush. No political maneuvers for the sake of friendships. Speak, stand up, stand flat-footed, don't blush, and tell the truth of the Word of God. Paul's statement is intended to proclaim the gospel. Now listen, Paul is not denying distinctions in the church. He is not saying that there is no such thing as a Jew or Gentile. You say, well, hang on a second. I I thought that that's exactly what he says. There is neither Jew nor Greek. He's not saying that there is no such thing as a Jew or a Gentile. He is quite aware of ethnic and national distinctions. He's not saying that there is no such thing as a slave or a free man. He is aware of cultural distinctions. He is also not communicating. He is not saying that there is no such thing as male or female. He is quite aware of simple biology. What he is saying is that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. 
In Christ, we are united together as the family of faith. In Christ, we are united with him through death. In Christ, we are united uh, with him through his resurrection. In Christ, we are brought together into the family of faith, into the local, tangible, visible New Testament church through the blood of Jesus Christ. So what he's saying here is he proclaims the gospel. He is saying that there is equal access to God. When Christ died on the cross, the temple, uh, uh, the, the, the veil in the temple was, was torn in two from top to bottom. That's, that's very important because God was communicating something that he's the one that ripped the veil. That the, the veil was torn in two, that God is the one responsible for this. And what he's suggesting, what he's saying, what he's proclaiming in that is that, that we have access to God. You don't have to go through a man to get to God. There is one mediator between God and men. The man Christ Jesus. So, man, woman, boy, and girl. Jew and Gentile. Bond and free. Educated, uneducated. We all have equal access to God. We have a great high priest who makes intercession for us and brings us together, uniting us together in Christ, through the cross, Sinclair Ferguson said it this way, quote, When Paul preached the cross, he preached a message which explained that this instrument of rejection had been used by God as an instrument of reconciliation. Man's means of bringing death to Jesus was God's means to bring life to the world. Man's symbol of rejecting Christ was God's symbol of forgiveness for man. This is why Paul boasted about the cross. Consider these words in the psalm. Psalm 34.2, My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. In Galatians 3.13, listen to what Paul says. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So Paul boasted in the cross of Jesus Christ, not his Jewish heritage. Paul boasted in the cross, not his gender. Paul boasted in the cross, not his religious pedigree. Paul boasted in the cross of Jesus Christ, not his status as an apostle, not his work as a missionary, not his ability as a pastor theologian. He boasted in the cross of Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians 1.18, Paul said, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. He wanted the church in Galatia to do the same thing. For their hearts to burn. For the leaders in the church at Galatia, for for those men to be excited about and confident in the clear proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And furthermore, there was equal hope. Equal hope. And that's the message he's proclaiming. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. He doesn't say, some of you are one in Christ Jesus. The Jews are one in Christ Jesus. And the Gentiles aren't exactly one in Christ Jesus. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And because of the work of Christ, the church of Jesus Christ should be united together in the bond of the gospel.
The Jew was no more saved than the Gentile. The free man was no more saved than the slave. The man was no more saved than the woman. There was equal hope. So there should be no competition based on Jewish heritage. There should be no competition based on gender. No competition. And, and, there's, and, and there should be no privilege based on perceived or even practiced class structures. Notice that Paul put emphasis on Christ and the gospel, not on social issues. You can't expect social methods to change the world. You can expect social methods to change laws. And you can expect social methods to change policies. But law and policy will not change the heart of a depraved sinner. Methods, laws, and political policies can result in mechanical change, but only the gospel of Jesus Christ can change the black, depraved heart of a selfish human being. That's why we don't need intersectionality. That's why we don't need ethnic pragmatism or cultural race theory or social justice. It is the purpose and the power of the gospel that souls might be saved. That sin might be forgiven. That hearts would be cleansed. That lives would be transformed. That guilt would be removed. That condemnation would be lifted. That righteousness would be granted. That the judgment of God would be settled. The wrath of God would be satisfied. The love of God would be magnified. And all possibilities of hell would be abolished forever to everyone who bows their knee to Jesus Christ, to all of God's elect, regardless of whether they're Jew or Gentile, bond or free, educated or uneducated. And we need the gospel of Jesus Christ. The ground is level at the cross. In Christ, sinners are saved. So it doesn't matter if you're red, yellow, black, or white, circumcised, or uncircumcised. It is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that changes a culture. That's why it is that today nearly 100% of, the, of Vanuatu bows the knee to Jesus Christ is because the gospel went there. The gospel went there. You see, we're having debates today on social media on whether or not we can be unified with different color skin in the church of Jesus Christ. We're having people uh, stand at conferences and preach sermons and give lectures about the fact that, uh, uh, that, that, that we need some sort of social justice methodology to correct the injustice and allow women to flourish in the local church. Call me crazy, but if a man sailed over to a savage group of islands where savages were living there, eating the flesh of missionaries just 19 years earlier and took the gospel of Jesus Christ with them and it changed the entire culture, caused those people to bow to Jesus Christ and now the entire group of islands, that entire cluster is a civil group of individuals. Bowing together, unified together in the gospel. Call me crazy, but I don't need what Kimberly Crenshaw says. I don't need what all these other social justice warriors say. I need the gospel of Jesus Christ. Isaac Watts said it this way. Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my sovereign die. Would he devote that sacred head For such a worm as I, 
at the cross, at the cross where I first saw the light and the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith. I received my sight and now I am happy all the day. The answer to reaching a lost culture and the answer to uniting a Christian community is not ethnic pragmatism. It is not gender pragmatism. It is not class pragmatism. It is not sexual pragmatism. The answer is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Give me the gospel of Jesus. And when we get the gospel right, it's amazing at how sweet and unified the relationships, both in the church and in the broader evangelical community, will actually be. How women will flourish, how preachers will preach, how missionaries will be sent out, how the culture will be invaded by an army of zealous-hearted, gospel-preaching Gospel preaching. Gospel preaching. Have we lost confidence in the preaching of the gospel? As we consider definitions of social justice, implications of social justice, as we consider what it means to be a Christian, how we should do justice, love kindness, And walk humbly in this world. Let us make sure that whatever we do. We don't take one half of one step away from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. Knowing that your labor is not in vain in Christ Jesus. Mm -hmm.